You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Thursday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. I'm the host of the Flip Maffler podcast. And as always, every Tuesday and sometimes even on Thursday, we actually have somebody come and do a takeover, which honestly gives me more time to do what I need to do in my life. But it also creates great content on the podcast. So this time, a good friend of mine, really, really a good friend of mine, Ted Wynn, he has a passion for the heroes in healthcare business. And we all know how the healthcare business has been impacted over the last years. And he, he started a podcast right in the middle of it. So Ted, tell us what this podcast series is all about that, and who do you interview in that? Sure. Well, thanks, Andrew, first. And second, thanks for having me here. Yeah, you know, our tagline is dedicated to highlighting bold, selfless professionals in the healthcare industry who are focusing on transforming lives in their communities. And we just thought with the COVID, COVID um, pandemic that we're all living through and still continuing to go through that these people and their stories just wasn't, wasn't being told or needed to be highlighted more. And so we just took it on as a, a bit of a passion project and said, let's start talking about these people and what they're doing. And uh, as a result, it's taken off. We have, uh, we are just finished episode 10. Ah, congrats. Thanks. And we have uh, last numbers I checked were about 1700 downloads. Already. That is awesome. So the podcast is called heroes of healthcare. Yep, and uh, yeah, and and uh, we are going to have links to your podcast here. So if people want to continue listening to it after even after the series is done, they can go check it out. We'll obviously write a blog and all those things. Share some of the people you're interviewing so we get a taste of it. Yeah. So yeah, and they can they can listen on the Heroes of Healthcare Podcast dot com website. So we have a whole website with the episodes posted there. Spotify, Apple, all the regular places as well. But yeah, we've been really fortunate. Um, we have uh, uh, Dr. Mark Knapp. He was a chief marketing, uh, excuse me, chief medical officer for Mount Sinai in New York City, who gave us a whole impact of how New York City responded to the pandemic and, and the stress on the people. We had the chief medical officer for Navant, massive healthcare system in the North Carolina and Southeastern market, talking all about vaccine safety of mRNA and the vaccine that's been coming out. And then we like to mix it up a little bit. We had an old-time friend of mine, Jack Curry, who is the voice of the New York Yankees, come on and talk all about baseball and how baseball was dealing with the COVID pandemic, but also how baseball was giving us some normalcy in our lives. Because one of the things we also want to focus on is not just the physicality of, of of the healthcare system, but also mental health. So we've also had the chief wellness officer from another major healthcare system talking about physician burnout, dealing with all the different clinicians and how are they dealing with the medical stress that they're under, under these uncertain times. So it's been very exciting and it's been, uh, we've had such a cross section of people. I think the listeners are going to find something in uh, great out of each one of them. Awesome, man. Ted, so, so everybody listening, you might be listening to the first episode you might be listening to the 10th takeover episode of this series. So just make sure you you look back and see if you have missed anything. But each one of them uh, is something that I feel, Ted, you being so passionate about it, 
is going to bring life to a lot of people as they hear it. So Ted, again, thanks for doing this. And everybody, enjoy the show. I'm privileged to be joined today by Dr. Eric Ischiaglu. Dr. Ischiaglu is the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Navon Health. He's a neurosurgeon. He's a former aerospace engineer. And he's clearly one of the people on the forefront of revolutionizing healthcare. He's leveraging technology. And he certainly is shifting paradigms, as you'll hear today. Dr. Ischiaglu joined Navon Health in 2015 as an SVP of Neurosciences, unifying processes and protocols to ensure world-class experience for patients across the Novon Health system. Before joining Navon Health, Dr. Ischiaglu held several leadership roles in advancing neuroscience and medicine in various healthcare systems. Before his career, and as you'll hear later on today, he worked as an aerospace engineer at Allied Signal Aerospace Division and Boeing. He continues to apply his engineering background and efforts to streamline healthcare. Dr. Eskiaglu earned his medical degree from the University of Kansas, was a Pfizer Clinical Research Scholar, fellow at the Endovascular Vascular Neurosurgery Fellow for the University of Florida, and completed his residency at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. It is certainly our privilege to be joined today by Dr. Eric Eskiaglu. Welcome, doctor. Thank you so much, Ted. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited. I'm really excited to get into some of the topics that we talked about today. But before we jump in, if you don't mind, do you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about your background? I think you have a fascinating background, great heritage, great education. If you could share some of that, I, I know they would love to hear a little bit more about you. Absolutely. Thanks for allowing me to do that. I'm Eric Estiagro. I'm a neurosurgeon. I am the chief medical officer and executive vice president at Novantel. We are a $6 billion multi-state integrated healthcare system across the Carolinas and Virginia. We span 16 hospitals as well as over 650 care sites, ambulatory care sites. I am a first-generation immigrant. My family is from Turkey. My parents came here as immigrants from Turkey. I am also a former aerospace engineer. I worked as an aerospace engineer for three years before getting to healthcare. I've been in healthcare for over 22 years now. And I can tell you that uh, what we're facing right now is historic, but also unprecedented in the times I've ever been in healthcare. So uh, glad to be here. Yeah, well, and again, we appreciate it. As you and I said before we kick this off, we appreciate your time in the midst of everything. So not only are we dealing with this major resurgence of COVID, but you're also dealing with a, a vaccination effort as well. So I'm sure the pressures on the system are great. Yeah. Uh, so as you know, we all had the first experience in April when we had to go into hurry up offense mode with COVID-19 surge. But I can tell you, our surge is about four times higher than what we ever had in April. Wow. So this is the biggest one we've had. And it is stressing our healthcare system. It is stressing our healthcare providers, physicians, our nurses, our team members. You know, we're, we're a resilient bunch at Novant Health and we're trying our best. But at the same time, we're trying to get uh, shots into people's arms with the COVID-19 vaccine as quickly as possible because we know the only way we can end this pandemic is not only by continuing to do social distancing, continuing to wear a mask, wash your hands obsessively, but also getting as many people as we can vaccinated, immunized with the COVID-19 vaccine. So we're doing dual things right now, dealing with the surge and taking care of our other patients. Don't forget, you know, the surge is part of what we're dealing with. We still have 95% of our patients are patients that have other healthcare needs. They're just as urgent or emergent. So we're taking care of that. 
but at the same time, we are rolling out our vaccination. I'm proud to say that Novant Health, over the last two weeks, we've vaccinated over 11,000 of our frontline team members, physician partners. And yesterday was a historic day because we started vaccinating our first patients in North Carolina as Novant Health. So I'm proud of that. And again, our goal is as soon as the vaccines arrive into our shelves, to get them off the shelves and be able to give it to people. Great. I mean, there's so many questions coming to me. So one of the things before we jump into a little bit more at the vaccine and, and some of that, one of the questions I know that really hit the healthcare systems hard, the first surge, as you said, back April, May of 2020, it's hard to say that we're in 2021 now, right? It goes fast. But in 2020 was that all of the surgical areas, all of the non-critical things got shut down, which obviously hampered the organization's cash flow, their income pieces. In this second flow, how has that changed? Are you guys still doing a lot of that work? Are you now doing that where in the past you shut it down, now you're doing it in parallel? Yeah. So a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it was less about cash flow, but it was all about taking care of our other patients. When we shut down everything, just like the rest of the nation for about six to eight weeks to prepare and to deal with the first surge in April, we realized that a lot of our patients stayed away from the hospitals, even emergency patients. Right. Stroke patients weren't calling in EMS. Heart attack patients weren't coming to the ERs. They were all afraid. And we noticed that we started falling behind other routine maintenance, such as breast mammography, colon cancer screening. These are all important things that we need to continue doing. With the first surge in April, we also learned how to take care of these patients in a much better way. We learned from the experiences of New York City. We learned from the experiences of other areas like Seattle, and we learned how to better take care of them. This time around, we are in a balancing act where we're not only taking care of our COVID patients, uh, they're in desperate need, but we're still continuing to give as much as we can. We have not curtailed any services yet. We're continuing to take care of our other cases, other patients that need different medical needs beyond COVID. We have a whole bunch of them. So we don't want to you know, neglect those patients, ignore those patients. Sure. And we're trying our best. We're having to you know, use all the resources we have, everything we got as team members, but also having to shift things around in different hospitals. So for example, you know, we have been cohorting most of our critical patients in COVID-19 at our large tertiary hospital. We'll continue to do that. That way it allows us to continue to do regular surgeries, regular maintenance, the other urgent cases at our outlying facilities that don't have as much COVID burden. Unfortunately, we're seeing that burden start rising because yeah. our tertiary hospitals are getting full. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I guess and I, my sense is that while not fully back, some of those people who in the first wave and had there was a lot of unknown around COVID and all are now a little bit more willing to come back. So those patients that you said earlier, the stroke patients or the cardiac patients, are you seeing them even in the midst of this new surge there? There's a little more willingness to come in and get treatment. There is. And I think it took a while for us to convince our patients that our hospitals are safe. Mm -hmm. We have the safest in our system at Novant Health. We have the safest cleaning protocols, sterilizing protocols. So your chance of getting a COVID in our hospital is almost nil. And we had to convince the patients because at the beginning, it was all unknown. So we are seeing the patients coming back. We are seeing the demand from the patients. My biggest concern is we saw a huge bump after Thanksgiving when the families got together. And we're starting to see a huge bump after Christmas when the families got together as well. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to, you know, hopefully... 
to me, the first one seemed like a hill. Now looking back at the time, it didn't seem like <laughs> it. Uh, scaling a small hill. Uh, we've had literally three waves. The first one was in April, May. The second one was in June and July. And this one is the last one, hopefully the final one. But each successive wave, I felt like the mountain was getting steeper. And right now, I feel like we're scaling the Himalayas. But we are going to be on the other side. I'm an optimist. We are going to scale the Himalayas. We're going to go to the other side. And I just need everybody to understand that we need to continue maintaining social distancing, wearing our masks, and obsessively washing our hands during the day. And that's how we're going to end up beating this in addition to getting our inoculations. We need to be injecting anybody they want, anybody that can, we can get our hands on with the COVID-19 vaccine. Well, hey, thanks for sharing that message again, because it can't be said enough. We have to be vigilant in those things. You know, there's so many, of course, we've made everything political. And then there's the political side that says, I don't need to, this isn't real. And, you know, no doubt this is real. So people like yourself who are in the front lines fighting this out, who are saying, please wear your mask. You know, we have to continue to echo that message. So thank you for continuing to support that. So let's talk about a little bit, if you don't mind, the vaccine, right? So that's, you know, probably a lot on people's minds. You guys have been receiving it both from, I'm I'm assuming the Pfizer and the Moderna have been coming in. Logistically, with these cold temperatures that this thing has to be maintained at, how does Navant handling that? Yeah, so we actually were, you know, we kind of saw what was coming down back in August. So we actually secured, uh, we got brand new four deep freezers that are very large industrial freezers, minus 70. And we have the capacity store up to 750,000 vaccines at any given time. Wow. So we have the capacity. We plan for this. I can tell you this vaccine rollout is logistically probably the most complicated, most difficult I've ever seen in my lifetime. But our teams have done a great job at Novant Health. Yes, we are getting both a Pfizer BioNTech vaccine as well as the Moderna vaccine. Because they're messenger RNA, they are fragile vaccines. So we need to keep them at minus 70. And we need to deliver them pretty quickly as soon as we thaw them. You can't Mm -hmm. put them back into a refrigerator or freezer. That doesn't work. But our teams have done a phenomenal job, both from the nursing side with our chief nursing officer, as well as from the pharmacy side with our chief pharmacy executive. We've really operationalized this in an incredible way. And we've gotten to a place where we have vaccination sites in our hospitals for our team members. Now we just rolled out vaccination sites in our cities, large cities, to be able to vaccinate people. And also we have put on a health equity lens because we want to make sure that we get to the population that's disproportionately affected with COVID-19. We want to make sure that they get the vaccination. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one part that gives me pause is even in the healthcare workers across the nation, there's about a 40% hesitancy to get the vaccine. And that really gives me pause. You know, I've heard people saying this vaccine process was rushed. How can you get a vaccine done in four to six months when it used to take two to three years. Uh, There's a lot of misinformation. Unfortunately, social media is not helping us at all. Lots of misinformation out there. What I want to tell you is when my turn came up, I took the vaccine. I trust the science. And, you know, I want to tell everybody, when you get a shot, don't pass it up. Take your shot. And, you know, I would encourage everybody to think about this very carefully. The science behind the vaccine has been in the making for 10 years. Yeah, I want to talk. Yeah, let's go. Let's talk about that, because I think that's the critical piece for me that, you know, as you said, people are concerned that this was a rush to medicine when it's it's really not. The foundation of this has been under development for many, many years. Yeah, it's been going on, uh, Ted, for 10 years. And 
Uh, luckily, it came to fruition just about the same time COVID-19 was hitting our communities around the world in the USA. And so this messenger RNA technology was developed initially for our bodies to be able to fight cancer. And I think that, that offers a lot of promise, but we were able to quickly pivot for vaccine devil. And so I want people to understand that even though the vaccine process may have seemed faster, going forward, this is probably going to be the norm. Any kind of different viruses, flu viruses, anything we get that may be new, the way we develop vaccines is probably going to be much shorter than what we had seen in the past 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I just want people to understand that. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's key. And I I think the other thing that was interesting, too, I'd love you to share with the listeners is how you feel that this could have a big impact in the future on HIV and cancer, because the two lead doctors on this were actually oncologists, which I didn't know because they were developing this technology, as you said, for over the last 10 years to really affect cancer. Yeah, the wife and husband team that developed this, the scientists, they're actually oncologists, uh, Dr. Shaheen and Dr. Tureji. They're Germans, they're Turkish Germans, Turkish like me. And, you know, they developed this for cancer. What they wanted to do was develop a way you can replicate a cancer cells, portion of the cancer cell, not the entire cancer cell. You don't want to make it active. A portion of it that your body recognizes for using the antigens and your body will attack these cells. Now, when we talk about immunology, when we talk about you know our body's own defenses, we always think about defenses outwards. But our body during any given time also does internal surveillance. It takes out bad cells, it destroys them before they become a problem. Cancer cells are the ones that escape that surveillance. And what this husband and wife scientist team was trying to do was, they're trying to develop a system where your body recognizes anything that's not right inside your body. I believe this is going to open up a lot of doors for cancer treatment. I can tell you that uh, the way we deal with cancer in the next five years is going to be very different. We're already doing a lot of that with CAR-T therapy, but mm-hmm. it's going to accelerate. I'm also very hopeful that you know there's another virus we haven't been able to conquer for the last 35 years. It's called HIV. And I'm also very hopeful that this is going to open the doors once we get a hold of this pandemic and stop in its tracks for COVID-19 we will find a vaccination for HIV as well. So as hopeless as things look right now, and they, there is a you know silver lining, there is a lot of hope on the horizon. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think we're going to come out of it much stronger as a healthcare system. That's great. No, it is definitely very exciting. Looking forward to seeing how, how, that, how that plays out. So let's also talk about the long-term effects of COVID. I know you've mentioned to me about some of the mental health aspects and some of the things we've seen that came out of the 2008 economic issue, but now we're dealing with a whole new different issue. Talk to me a little bit about what some of you think some of the long-term effects might be on the mental health side. Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at the 2006 to 2008 financial crisis, uh, and when we look at the, you know, the amount of mental health issues that caused our population, our opioid abuse and our mental health issues went up by about 35 to 40%. And that was a huge bump. Big. Uh, unfortunately, COVID-19 is going to be proved to be even worse in my estimation. You know, we, we have a lot of our fellow countrymen losing their jobs, losing their homes, not being able to provide for their families. And that is starting to increase a lot of opioid addiction. 
And that's also going to start to increase a lot of the, you know, substance abuse besides opioids, but also mental health issues, depression, suicide risk. That's all going to be on the rise. And even if we were able to get a hold of COVID-19, say in the next six months, the tail effect of that will probably last at least two to three years. So the social effect is going to linger for a while, unfortunately. And so we are really focused on how do we take care of those after effects of COVID-19. You know, we're working on the artificial intelligence side. We have a huge artificial intelligence push in our healthcare organization. We believe that is the next, you know, wave in healthcare that's going to make us more efficient, more effective, less costly. So we're looking at ways of not only helping patients with a virtual, you know, behavioral health possible concept, but also identifying team members or identifying employees that might be susceptible to getting into depression or substance abuse before they get into that and helping them out proactively, you know, if they want to be helped proactively. We don't have enough, before COVID-19, our behavioral health in this country was on crutches to begin with. So, you know, we have to come up with innovative ways because we don't have more psychiatrists. We have to come up with innovative ways how we're going to solve this problem once it shows up on our doorstep. So COVID-19 is obviously horrible, but there's going to be a lot of other things that come along with this that we have to deal with. One of the other things we're seeing is a lot of mental health effects on people who have had COVID-19. About 30 to 40 percent of the people, you know, they lose smell, they lose taste. But besides that, they're having mental issues afterwards. We're seeing renal issues, kidney issues afterwards. We're seeing lung issues. Their lungs don't return back to normal where their lung function should be. So we'll be dealing with a lot of the different effects of COVID-19 many years after we've conquered this god-awful pandemic. And so we're pivoting towards that also, looking to the future. What do we need to do to keep our patients healthy and how can we help them in that aspect? No, I think that's great. And, you know, you you answered one of the things, which was, you know, obviously, and the behavioral health is not rich with providers, right? It's already resource strapped and there's just not enough psychiatrists and psychologists to go around. So can you give us a little bit of an idea of how AI, how, what are you guys seeing or an example of one of the ways that you might be able to leverage AI or some of the things that the system is doing that will help you be able to bring more services with honestly less people. Yeah. So we have started AI journey way before COVID-19. Fortunately for us, we have a very good data analytics team. We have an incredible technology team. Our chief transformation and technology officer is phenomenal. So we work with them very closely. We had started that journey initially with our stroke patients. We started using a system called BizAI with our stroke patients where the artificial intelligence detects the stroke of the patient while they're in the CAT scanner without them being able to leave the CAT scanner. So we cut that step and we're able to you know, not only detect the stroke even before the patient leaves the CAT scanner using machine learning and artificial intelligence, but that alert goes on your smartphone. You know, most of my providers, most of the physicians are mm. the millennial generation. They have smartphones, whether it be Apple, or Samsung Galaxy. And what they have been able to do is they get that alert on their smartphones and they can look it up anywhere, anytime. And they can activate the whole team from the smartphone, whether it be the ER physician, whether it be the OR staff, whether it be the neurologist, whether it be the pharmacist. Just think about the old ways we did stroke in this country has been, and they still, there's still places how they do this this way. Patient comes into the ER with a stroke alert, 
gets taken back to the CAT scan, and CAT scan gets done. You get a stat reading from radiology, which in the best of times takes 15 minutes. Sometimes it can take even more. Right. And the radiologist ends up calling the ER physician saying there's a stroke. ER physician hangs up the phone, has the secretary call the neurologist on call saying he needs to come down and look at it. The neurologist looks at it. Then he will have to call the neurosurgeon or invention neuroradiologist to activate the team. Just think about the step you lost. Yeah. And every second of a stroke, you lose about 32,000 brain cells. So we've been able to shave, and we were one of the best in the country as far as how quickly we could give the clot-busting drugs to our patients. Mm-hmm. We were about 39 minutes, and the national standard is about 60 minutes, within 60 minutes of stroke. We've been able to shave it down to 29 minutes. That's 10 more minutes. That's about 19 million more brain cells on average per patient. Yeah, well, it's have, you, cut, you cut it in more than half. Yeah, and you. so you. this is one of those things that you really not only improve the outcomes, but you also maximize the efficiency of what you're doing. And I guess this is my aerospace engineering background coming into play. Right. I like processes that are efficient and processes that are finely tuned. And you keep getting it better. I mean, once you set a process, it doesn't stay that way. And we're making this even better, you know, collaborating with the company, trying to make this process even more smooth and uh, much more uh, fast on. But this is the, one of the examples of AI that we'd be using. Another example of AI that we'd be using is, you know, helping our patients stay out of the hospital with heart failure. We can predict who can come into the heart failure and who may end up in the hospital. You know, we want to make sure that they're taken care of in their own home environment. They don't need to come to the hospital for a lot of this stuff. And so we're predicting which patients and we're paying attention to those patients. The one thing I, I, I neglected to mention, you know, AI to me seems like it's going to be the great equalizer for all populations for healthcare equity. And when you look at stroke care, it doesn't matter if the patient is in uptown Charlotte or they're in rural Elkin, North Carolina. They get the same care with tele-neurology and with artificial intelligence. Same amount of attention, same details, same protocols. And we're trying to do this for all our disease processes because, you know, I want to be able to provide all our patients the same utmost care regardless of their entry point into our system. Yeah, that's great, right? Because the AI doesn't see the biases. I mean, not that AI can't get bias, it can yeah. earn to biasy, and you have to always be tweaking that. But the AI doesn't see the same emotional, socio-economic, typical human biases. Yeah, uh, thank you, human biases that all of us just tend to do. So yeah, well, that's that's amazing. That's great. Talk a little bit more about you. You have an interesting, you know, your background. You know, your engineering background. You started off, obviously, with school and engineering and ended up in medicine. But talk a little bit more about how you see that play out, obviously, in terms of process and efficiencies. But how has it helped you in your, in your not only your practicing of medicine, but now in your, your, administra- you know, your role as, a, as an administration arm, an executive arm of the hospital? Yeah, you know, I look at healthcare very differently because of my engineering background. And, you know, I actually practiced as an engineer for three years. So I didn't just go to school. I graduated from University of Arizona, worked as an aerospace engineer, worked with different plane manufacturers and had a great time. But during that time, what I realized is this was in the late 80s, early 90s. I'm kind of dating myself here. But what I realized is they had gotten their stuff together. They knew how to maximize the processes and make them efficient and really zero tolerance, almost zero tolerance for any kind of error. 
And I tried to bring the same mentality to healthcare. You know, when I first started in healthcare at Vanderbilt, I trained at Vanderbilt as a nurse surgery resident. You know, it started, and Vanderbilt's a fantastic institution, probably one of the best in the country. But healthcare in general startled me how far behind it was technology-wise compared to any other industry. Mm-hmm. And we still are. I mean, in my estimation, we're about 10 to 15 years behind other industries in, in getting technologies and advanced, you know, modules into healthcare. The one thing that I have seen that really helped us out is COVID-19. I can, I, you know, everything, unfortunately, comes back to COVID-19. But the silver lining has been, it's really accelerated our technological advances. I'll give you the example of our physician. You know, before COVID-19, we're doing about 150 televisits a day. You know, and you, you talk about 650 care sites with over you know, 1,900 physicians. 152 seems like a low number. Once we hit the pandemic, we had no choice, right? Everything had to shut down. The only way to interact with your patients was through telemedicine. And to the credit of IT partners, we're able to rise that up pretty quickly. At the height of the pandemic, we're doing about 7,000 visits a day. Just think about 152, 150 to 7,000. Those numbers have, and I told people, those numbers are going to go down, but they're going to plateau. And it has. It's about 2,500 televisits a day. And there's that certain segment of the population that includes my wife, who makes all the healthcare decisions for us in the the household, including my kids. You know, they have gotten used to telemedicine. They feel like this is a good venue for me to access healthcare. Yes. That's never coming back. And so, you know, in a a good way, COVID-19 has been the great accelerator for us to be able to move into these technologies that may have taken years for us to get into. The other thing I have seen is, you know, with competitors, we become almost overnight collaborators for COVID-19. Because again, we're in friendly competition with a couple of systems in our areas that we serve. But what happened is we got together as systems and we really want to do what's best for our communities. We realized that this is our community, not their community, not my community, our community. And we started really, it's amazing to see how competitors can come together and, you know, work for the best of the community in the worst of times. So that gave me a lot of hope as well. That's great. So tell me when you were working aerospace and you were being an engineer, what made you pivot and change your mind or decide that you wanted to get into medicine? There's a fair amount of difference there. Here it is. So I actually used to be responsible for the, I used to work on a team where we looked at the interface of the Boeing 777 aircraft's wing with the jet engine. So it was a fantastic project, really loved it. I started actually volunteering at a children's hospital over the weekends. And I started rounding with the pediatric attendees that were really kind to take me in and volunteering there, just trying to help families. And at that point, I realized that, you know, Everything they did was a different problem. Every problem was unique, like your fingerprint, and none two patient was alike. Mm-hmm. And that fascinated me. Now, you have to understand, my dad was a pediatrician. He was a neonatologist. He was dedicated okay. to helping save kids' lives. I never wanted to be a doctor. I'm a very analytical person. I'm a very math-based person. So all I wanted to do is work on planes because I was fascinated with space and planes ever since I was a young age. Beyond the usual child's fascination, I still am. I know we've talked about that. Yeah. So when I started seeing the physicians and they tackling each problem, and each problem was a unique problem where you could have an effect on somebody's life, that's what changed me. Now, it wasn't an overnight switch. It wasn't like I went there twice and I felt like, oh, my God, I got to change my life. Right. It took about a year of me volunteering. And at one point, I realized 
I really love what they do. I want to make a difference in people's lives. I felt like I was making a difference as an engineer in people's lives, making it better and more technologically advanced. But I felt like I wanted to get in, in a deeper way and to be able to make a difference in people's lives. So I quit my job. I remember my supervisor at the time thought I was joking because I had a pretty you know, bright career. And I went back at the tender age of 25 back to biology 101 because I had never taken biology as an undergrad <laughs> and uh, dissecting frogs with 18-year-olds, uh, did one year of uh, pre-med and of course got into medical school and the rest is history. The best part of my medical school, I did get selected to a very prestigious program that was on the startup phase called NIH Clinical Research Start, uh, Scholars Program. Uh, interestingly, it was sponsored by Pfizer. Okay. And, uh, so I have that Pfizer connection. And Charlie Sanders, who was their emeritus CEO, was one of my mentors there. So it was interesting just dealing with that. And, you know, I had a fantastic time at NIH. I spent two years there doing clinical research, translational research. And that's where my love for research came in and all this advancement in technologies came in. And so fell in love with that. So it's it's you know it's clear to me you know Navant and as I've been following some of the things that you the post on LinkedIn and stuff I always find it fascinating in terms of they're really trying to continue to be part of the leading edge. What are some of the other things, COVID or non-COVID, that you see coming out of the system that gets you excited? That you really think you guys are really on the forefront and cutting edge and creating some really good new opportunities in healthcare. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing for us is really trying to provide equity to healthcare to everybody that comes in. And we're using any kind of advanced technologies, including machine learning, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, the next, the other thing that we're really excited uh, is the Zipline drone, where we hope to be able to start delivering medications to patients with a drone so they don't have to go out of their house, pick up medications, especially people are the, the most vulnerable. During the pandemic, we did get an FAA waiver to be able to do on-demand delivery of our PPEs to our hospitals with Zipline. That was a good experiment for us. That was a good dry run, I should say. It wasn't a dry run. We actually did provide a lot of PPE. But my next hope is that you know the next big push for our organization, and you know this is led by our CEO, Carl Armato, and our board, is really to be not on the not just on the leading edge, but being in the front of everybody else as far as offering the artificial intelligence and the advanced technologies, anything that's going to make healthcare more efficient, effective, and more precise, precision medicine. But also by doing that at the same time, you reduce the clinical variations, but you make it less expensive. It, just because you pay too much to it doesn't mean that's a good product. And we've seen that with other products besides healthcare. Sure. So our goal is to make it so precise and so finely tuned for each individual patient, because every one of us is like our fingerprint. We have unique problems and none two diseases the same. Mm -hmm. Fine tune it, make it precise for every patient, but at the same time, lower the cost using all these fantastic advancements in technology. That's awesome. That's great. You know, and one as we're starting to wrap up here, one of the other things I had from my notes that we had talked about in our in our first discussion was a virtual hospital model. Yes. And you, you talked about being very excited about that. Can you, can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been fascinated. Of course, this came about my thought process about space. I'm fascinated about space. And of course, during this COVID pandemic, a lot of the 
space launches we've had kind of went a little bit unnoticed. If we didn't have COVID, I think it would be front page news every day, you know, with SpaceX shuttle launches almost on every week now. Right. Routine. And, you know, in the next three to five years, I'd venture to guess that we'd be colonizing the moon. And and we are at a, a, you know, race with Chinese and the Russians to be able to colonize the moon. There's going to be a lot of discoveries there. But from all that thought, I start thinking, well, when we colonize the moon, how are these 100 to 200 people going to get their health care? You know, well, how are we going to do that? So it came from an idea where whatever we can do on moon, we could directly apply it to good old earth here. And one of the areas I think we've seen, unfortunately, a dramatic closure of our rural hospital system. So we have a lot of hospital deserts in this country right now because rural hospitals are not able to sustain themselves. And I feel like the rural uh, hospitals can be supported not only by these advanced technologies. So we're doing like Viz AI. We're trying to keep the patients in their own hospitals rather than bring them all to the big mothership and the tertiary hospitals. That will help them both financially, also clinically. But where there is no rural hospital, we should be able to offer this virtual hospital model where a patient literally will walk in with a VR or AR and be able to feel that they're in a setting and be able to interact with people virtually. And by doing that, I think we can help a huge amount of the population. Now, you can't do virtual heart surgery. You can't do virtual brain surgery. Sure. So those, are, those are very futuristic. But if you think about the things we're doing today, and, you know, I want your listeners to, to leave this podcast understanding that today is probably going to be the slowest change of pace you're going to see in your entire life. From this day on, every day, the change of pace you're going to see, especially in medicine, is going to be accelerated and getting larger and larger and larger. So, you know, a lot of these things that we thought 10 years ago could not be done, we're doing it now. I mean, wow. when I was training, we couldn't, you know, for brain aneurysms, the only way we could do that was by opening up the skull and going to the brain and clipping the aneurysm. Now we can do 80% of them with what I call Band-Aid surgery. We go through the groin, go through the femoral artery, go up to the brain while the patient is sleeping, take care of that aneurysm, come out, the patient leaves home the next day. I mean, these were things that were unthinkable 15, 20 years ago. And now we're doing all of this stuff. So the future of medicine is very exciting. And I urge people to think how they can contribute. In closing, one of the things I also urge medical students to think about is the future physician is not going to be only a physician who's excellent in clinical diagnosis and clinical skills, but also who has some data science component to their training. What I mean by that is, understand some of the Python training, understand some of the data science, because they are going to be able to be the ones that utilize this fantastic you know, technology to be able to be better doctors. AI is not going to replace physicians, but AI will replace physicians who resist them. Mm-hmm. You know, physicians who use AI are going to replace physicians who resist AI. So I can tell you that for sure. Right. You got to embrace the change because it's coming whether you like it or not. It's here. It's already here. Well, and what I love and I love about your positivity and your, you know, in the face of the disasters we've all been and the the hardship that we're dealing with, you continue to see the positive part of it. So I appreciate that. And thank you for that. I also love the fact that you're you're basically validating that because of the positive coming out of the pandemic is going to be an acceleration in medicine and technology. There's going to be advancements. I think the telemedicine thing is just even a perfect example, how the regulatory things were standing in the way of a growing telemedicine due to the pandemic. We had to get the, throw those things away and they're not going to come back because we're seeing all the benefit and the value of the thing. So there are bright things that come out of the 
out of the disaster as well. So I love that. I love that about you. I love your spirit. Thank you for being a frontline hero, as we like to talk about it here as a healthcare. You guys are, you know, doing superhuman things. We typically, as I mentioned, you close these segments with our heroes of healthcare. And I love to ask you the question when you think about it, who is your hero? My hero is not a healthcare hero. It is actually Professor Edward Deming. And the reason I fell in love with him as an engineer was Professor Deming was uh, the gentleman that went to, he was a professor, he was a systems engineer, and he went to Japan after World War II and really made them what they were as an industrial powerhouse. He inspired people to believe that every one of you can improve your organization regardless of the level you are. And some people call it total quality management, some organizations call it continuous quality improvement. But he gave the notion and concept of you have uh, your destiny in your own hands as an individual person at the organization. You can contribute at your level regardless of what level you are. So he is my hero, Professor Edward Deming. Yep. And I think, I think if I remember the Japanese call that Kaizen. Kaizen. Yep. It is Kaizen. And a lot of our technology and a lot of our companies in the late eighties adopted those methodologies. I was actually on the receiving end. Well, that's, I'm dating myself too. That's how I, that's how I know Kaizen. Cause I'm old too. <laughs> yeah, And that's when I started getting into it. I love it. I mean, that's, I think, and again, the possibility of empowering your own employees to improve things without waiting for somebody from higher up to tell them that. Take control of it. Amazing. Well, doctor, thank you so much for joining us. It's our pleasure to have you on the Heroes of Healthcare podcast. Continued success. Keep trailblazing. Keep finding new ways to do this. I love the hope that you bring to us, the confidence in the vaccine. Keep wearing masks. Keep being vigilant. Let's keep that message going. And we just continue to, to thank you for your service and wish you all the best in your continued success as you move forward. Thank you so much. And again, I want to leave by saying, uh, when you get a shot, take it. Don't pass it up. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ted. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.